Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each week, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Karen Chikurji. This week, the first creatures to crawl onto land may have done so to see the better view. Life on Earth began in water, so when the first animals moved onto land, they traded their fins for limbs and their gills for lungs. They did this to adapt to the new environment. A new study suggests that those changes don't tell the full story. As creatures emerged from the sea, they gained something perhaps more valuable than oxygenated air. They gained information. Eyes can see much farther in air than they can underwater. Malcolm McIver, a neuroscientist and engineer at Northwestern, says seeing farther provided what he calls an informational zipline. This meant ancient animals could better identify food sources near the shore. McIver maintains that this zipline drove the selection of early limbs, which allowed animals to make their first brief visits to land, and it may have had big effects on the development of more advanced cognition and complex planning. McIver says it's hard to look past limbs and think that information is really what brought us onto land. McIver worked with Lars Schmitz, a paleontologist at the Claremont Colleges. They created mathematical models that explore how more information available to air-dwelling creatures would have been exhibited by an increase in eye size. McIver and Schmitz call this the Buena Vista hypothesis. McIver first came up with this hypothesis in 2007 while studying the black ghost knifefish of South America. Black ghost knifefish hunt at night by generating electrical currents in the water to sense their environment. McIver compares the effect to a kind of radar system. McIver also has experience with robotics and mathematics, so he built a robotic version of the knifefish with an electrosensory system to study study its sensing abilities and agile movement. McIver found the volume of space in which the knifefish can potentially detect water fleas, one of its favorite prey. He compared it with that of a fish that relies on vision to hunt water fleas, and he found that the volumes were roughly the same. This was surprising. Generating electricity to perceive the world requires a lot of energy, so McIver expected the knifefish to have a smaller sensory volume for prey compared to a vision-centric fish. But he soon found that the big reason for the small visual sensory space was the amount that water absorbs and scatters light. In fresh shallow water, for example, the distance that light can travel before it is scattered or absorbed ranges from 10 centimeters to 2 meters. In air, light can travel between 25 to 100 kilometers. Because of this, aquatic creatures don't gain much of an evolutionary benefit from an increase in eye size, but they do have much to lose. Eyes are costly in evolutionary terms because they require a lot of energy to maintain. Increasing eye size in water, McIver says, is like switching on high beams in the fog to see farther ahead. Once you take eyes out of the water and into air, a larger eye size leads to a proportionate increase in how far you can see. McIver concluded that eye size would have increased significantly during the water-to-land transition. Paleontologists had noticed an increase in eye size in the fossil record. They just hadn't attributed much significance to the change, but McIver had his hypothesis and decided to investigate for himself. 
He teamed up with Schmitz, who had expertise in interpreting the eye sockets of four-legged tetrapod transition fossils. First, they carefully reviewed the fossil record to track changes in the size of eye sockets. Any change would imply a corresponding change in eye size, since the two are proportional. The pair collected 59 early tetrapod skulls spanning the water-to-land transition period and measured both the eye orbit and the length of the skull. Then, they used the data to simulate how eye socket size changed over many generations. They found that there was an increase in eye size. In fact, eye size tripled during the transitional period. The average eye socket size before transition was 13 millimeters, compared to 36 millimeters after. There was just one problem. Originally, McIver assumed that the increase occurred after animals became fully terrestrial, but the shift occurred before the water-to-land transition was complete, even before creatures developed early digits on their fish-like limbs. They wondered how could being on land have driven the gradual increase in eye socket size? When they reviewed their data, McIver and Schmitz noticed that the eye sockets shifted position over the transitional period. They moved from the sides of the skull to the top. They also observed tiny notches near the ear area called spiracles, designed to make it easy for the tetrapods to breathe through air. In short, the creatures resembled crocodiles. Suddenly, everything clicked into place. Transitional tetrapods would have hunted like crocodiles. They would have lurked in the shore's shallow waters with just the eyes peeking above the surface, lunging onto land wherever they spotted tasty prey. In that case, McIver says, it looks like hunting like a crocodile was the gateway drug to terrestriality. Coming up on land was likely about how the huge gain in vision from poking eyes above the water to see prey gradually selected for limbs. After determining how much eye sizes increased, McIver calculated how much farther the animals could see with bigger eyes. He adapted an existing ecological model. The model accounts for the anatomy of the eye and other factors, like the surrounding environment. In water, a larger eye only increases the visual range from just over 6 meters to nearly 7 meters, but increase the eye size in air and the visual range goes from 200 meters to 600 meters. McIver and Schmitz ran the same simulation under many different conditions. Daylight, a moonless night, starlight, clear water, and murky water. McIver says it doesn't matter. In all cases, the increment in air is huge. A growing number of paleontologists and evolutionary biologists are embracing quantitative tools to help explain patterns in the fossil record. Schmitz identified two key developments in the quantitative approach over the past decade. First, more scientists have been adapting methods from modern comparative biology to fossil record analysis, studying how animals are related to each other. Second, there is a lot of interest in modeling the biomechanics of ancient animals in a way that is actually testable. That would allow researchers to determine how fast dinosaurs could run, for instance. A model-based approach for interpreting fossils can be applied to biomechanics and sensory function. In this case, it explained how coming out of the water affected the vision of early tetrapods. Schmitz plans to examine other water-to-land transitions in the fossil record to see if he can find a corresponding increase in eye size. He says if you can look at other water-land transitions, there are similar patterns. For example, the fossil record for marine reptiles, which rely heavily on vision, should also show increasing eye socket size as they moved from water to land. 
McIver's background as a neuroscientist led him to wonder how all this might have influenced the behavior and cognition of tetrapods. For instance, if you live and hunt in the water, your limited vision range means you operate primarily in what McIver calls the reactive mode. You have just a few milliseconds to react. On land, seeing farther means you have much more time to assess the situation and choose the best course of action. According to McIver, it's likely the first land animal started out hunting for land-based prey reactively. Over time, those that could move beyond reactive mode and think strategically would have had a greater evolutionary advantage. McIver says perspective cognition, contemplating multiple futures and quickly deciding between them, is an important feature of our own cognitive abilities. The work has implication for the future evolution of human cognition. Perhaps one day we will be able to take the next evolutionary leap by overcoming what MacIver jokingly calls the, quote, paleo-neurobiology of human stupidity, end quote. Human beings can grasp the consequences of short-term threats, but long-term planning, like lessening the effects of climate change, is more difficult for us to process. Maybe limitations in strategic thinking come back to the way different environments favor the ability to plan. MacIver says he hopes this kind of work with the fossil record can help identify our own cognitive blind spots. For more on this story, read Jennifer Wallet's full article, Why Did We Move to Land, for the view on our website. This episode was produced by Jeanette Kazmerzak. I'm Karen Chakurji, and I'm signing off for now. Next time, you'll hear highlights of Quanta's reporting from a new host. Please take a minute to review this podcast in iTunes. For news and interviews, visit quantamagazine.org. Quanta.